podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Mina Hernandez-Garcia, a 2022 scholar and the first Amy Makosi Cho and Lawrence Cho Family Scholar. Mina is a PhD candidate in educational studies with a focus on translanguaging or teachers and students' use of multiple languages to make meaning in subject matter classrooms. Mina, welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us your story, including how you decided to come to U of M for your PhD? So first, I want to thank the Center for Education of Women and the Cho family for this valuable scholar award that will help me with my further work, in particular, my research on translanguaging in education. And also thank you for (laughs) inviting me to this podcast to share what I learned from my lived experiences and from my research. So in regards to my story. I was born and raised in Serbia and I started learning English as a foreign language at the age of 11 and that's when I developed interest and love for learning languages and also about different cultures. And that is also when I knew that I would be an English language teacher. So I earned my bachelor's degree in English language and literature at the University of Belgrade. And then I became an English as a foreign language teacher to middle school, high school, and college students for eight years. And living in the Balkans, in particular in Serbia during the 90s and in the beginning of 2000s, was very turbulent in terms of the civil war, skyrocketing inflation, raising poverty, political and economic sanctions, So that's actually when I decided that my ambition for development as a teacher and in general reaching my educational and professional goals were stifled in a way. So I immigrated to the United States in my late 20s in New York City. And I had multiple jobs and I was saving money to finance my education, continuing education in the field of teaching English to speakers of other languages. So I enrolled in the City College of New York teacher education graduate program. And during my studies there, I learned about functional linguistics perspective and grammar pedagogy. Actually, the studies there increased my knowledge on functional linguistics perspective and grammar pedagogy, multicultural education, as well as my scholarly research skills. And that is also when I started learning about translanguaging as a pedagogical approach. So after earning my master's degree in TESOL, I was invited to teach in the City College of New York TESOL and bilingual teacher education graduate program as an adjunct instructor, as well as to support New York City teaching fellows as a field consultant. So as a New York City teaching fellows field consultant, I worked, I support teachers in New York City, new teaching fellows in New York City public schools who were in particular working with a large number of emergent bilinguals and newcomers. And these students are often referred to as English language learners. 
So based on my anecdotal evidence, what I observed in the teacher, some of the teachers who had emergent bilinguals in their content mainstream classrooms, they struggled in terms of how to support these students. And so sometimes observed that they use simplified subject matter instructional materials and there was not much support that they would promote these students' meaningful engagement and participation. So based on my observations, emergent bilinguals would spend most of their lesson time copying what the teacher wrote on the board, trying to complete their simplified worksheets, or just sit at the back of the classroom without engaging in any relevant classroom work on meaningful participation in classroom communicative activities. And also, I was very interested on learning more about functional linguistics perspective and actually teaching grammar in content classrooms. So just when I say functional linguistics perspective, just to clarify what it is, it's viewed that grammatical forms or structures are not isolated structures that don't have any meaning. But we as speakers and writers deploy grammar uh, forms depending on context and situation we are in and depending on what meanings we want to convey to our interlocutors. So thus grammar conveys meaning. So I came across to work of a professor of education, Mary Schlepper-Girl, who is uh, my current advisor at the School of Education, and she's a linguist and a leading expert in systemic functional linguistics. And her work also focuses on supporting bilingual and multilingual learners, in particular, their language and literacy development in school contexts. So I started reading more. Actually, I came across her book that's called Language of Schooling, a Functional Linguistics Perspective, and the systemic functional linguistics approach. So, so as I said, I was interested in this approach. And as I read Professor Schlepergel's research and also some other literature that she co-authored with her colleagues, I searched actually where she was working and doing her research. And I found that she was working in Ann Arbor at University of Michigan. And so I applied as I wanted to work with her and learn more in terms of what is that the teachers need to know in terms of supporting all students, in my case, bilingual, multilingual students, when it comes to their disciplinary language and literacy. Oh, that's interesting. So by discipline, how grammar is deployed as a mechanism to communicate. Yes, and each discipline, as I mentioned earlier, whether it is math or social studies or science, has its own disciplinary language and register in terms of how we talk about different phenomenons in those different disciplines, as well as how we write about that. And that's something that all students should be explicitly taught. And and the emphasis is here that students who are new, who come to US 
classrooms, and most of these classrooms, mainstream classrooms, the education is only in English, and they're new to learning English, but at the same time, they're also learning new content. And as I mentioned earlier, the registered, the language that we use to talk about phenomenons in different disciplines and write about them, it's not easy. It's very complex. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Oh, I can completely students, see yeah. that. Oh, yeah. yeah and even so. as an English speaker, going mm-hmm. into a physics class or going into a calculus class or into a STEM field or a humanities field, the language, it does shift a lot. And it's very different mm-hmm. by discipline, as you're pointing out. So then coupling on to that, an uh, English as a second language learner, it becomes extremely complex. And the expectation I can only imagine like in a college where they're learning both the interdisciplinary material as well as, well as their specialized material, the, the coding that has to happen between each of their classes is, is extremely high. Exactly. So even like a person who is monolingual, when they enter like a discipline that they're not familiar with, they need to learn the language and writing and So I also want to mention about bilingual, multilingual, especially newcomers. They are at the same time learning language and learning true language. And when I say learning true language, they're learning the content of that discipline, whether it is math, social studies or science Mm -hmm. or English. So how, what have you seen as the coping mechanisms for students in this transition, the multilingual students and the, those learning English for the first time? Like, how do they cope with this new environment and all of the information coming towards them? Well, it differs from student to student. So in the past, these students, and even actually now, they would be placed in English as a, so-called English as a second language mm-hmm. classrooms, where the focus would be just English language, just developing English language in general. However, what was missing was missing the content part, like uh, they wouldn't be keeping up with their grade level peers, like in learning math or social studies or science. So it would be kind of wasting fine time for them. And as I said, in terms of these coping mechanisms, I believe it differs from one student to another. So especially in the United States, children that come into our schools, they come to United States for various reasons. And the students that I encountered in schools is that they are migrating United States due to war or their refugees. Some come because of economic reasons. And all these students, they are migrating and the act of migration is <laughs> not easy for anybody and even to think about child. Right. Uh, and I empathize with students in terms of migration, being an immigrant myself, and then communication to new culture and for some students to new ways of living and then when we enter schools in united states some students have gap in education they don't have any they have gap in education in terms of that they had interrupted formal schooling and even those who haven't had interrupted schooling their educational and lived experiences in their 
birth countries are different than the culture of schooling in this country. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of change, especially if coming from a traumatic situation, as you pointed out, that's war-torn or change in leadership that has necessitated a refugee status. That's a lot for a person to take in all at once, in addition to, uh, you know, what you've described in the classroom. So, but my work actually, mostly when it comes to research, uh, focuses on middle schoolers. And as I mentioned earlier, they bring a wealth of uh, linguistic and cultural knowledge and focusing in particular on translanguaging in classrooms. It is when students are invited and encouraged to use their what we call in simple terms, home language, besides English, to support their language development, meaning their home language and English, and at the same time, learn contents. So I work with Spanish newcomer students who come from Spanish-speaking countries and students who come from the Middle East, meaning that all students spoke Arabic at home, and they were now in U.S., mainstream classrooms, in particular social studies, where their education had been or they had been socialized to participate only in English. So although they speak Arabic at home and socially in the halls and with their friends, they're only using English in their learning of content. And these years also, even newcomers, they, since only English is used in classrooms to support learning, these students also internalize that only English is valued. And since English is a default model of education in U.S. schools. So my research focused on translanguaging in education, how we can support students' language development. And I'm not saying only English, but their home language at the same time as they're learning content. And in this case, in this educational context where I was is sixth grade social studies inquiry. Mm-hmm. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. So you're working with middle school students to help mm-hmm. them bridge their home language, as you described, to describe it basically, their home language into the classroom at the same time that they are immersed in an English language classroom to learn new knowledge? Yes. So just kind of to put that in simple terms, this translanguaging approach includes giving students materials in their home language, in case it was Arabic, parallelly with English. I see. And also having them talk about social studies, and in this case, we were implementing curriculum social studies inquiry, so that they learn through language using both Arabic and English. And being as translanguaging, being considered as a culturally sustaining pedagogy, and my approach actually in implementing this translanguaging design is that Arabic is not like a scaffold or a crutch towards Mm -hmm. learning English. But the goal is that they develop as well their home language. Because some of these students, they never had education. They never had formal education in Arabic. They came here 
let's say, at the age of two, or they came uh, within the period of last two or three years. So uh, most of students I work with, they don't know how to read or write in Arabic, but they speak Arabic because they haven't had, they either were refugees or had interrupted schooling, and they have what we call social Arabic. So the aim is that we support their Besides support uh, developing English language, English language, we want them also to develop their bilingualism, their bilingual mm -hmm. identities, as well by developing, expanding their language repertoire, so that their Arabic is also expanding, so mm -hmm. that they are able to use Arabic to talk, let's say, about social studies, about math, about science, and that they develop their bilingualism. So if they're not given these opportunities, some students might be what they call it, like lose, losing the mm -hmm. language. And then the goal is to serve these communities, immigrant communities, so these students in the future possibly become bilingual teachers of tomorrow, so that bilinguals and multilingualism is becoming a norm mm -hmm. in U.S. classrooms. I have to imagine. So my mom, when she was growing up, she spoke Chinese in her family. And, you know, she went to a U.S. school. It was in Central California, and they only taught English. And she was, this was back in the, you know, 50s and 60s. And so she was made fun of quite heavily for her accent, which then shamed her into not wanting to teach me and her other kids how to speak Chinese. And I could only mm -hmm. imagine the difference that a family feels who's from a different country and speaks a different language of being welcomed um, through your approach which is very different than how it traditionally happens in the U.S. education system, where we, like you said, English is the only accepted language, and that goes back to the family as well, and how we're receiving them as a country in our schooling system. Exactly. And also, I find it interesting to share, since English is default model education, and, and students are socialized to mm -hmm. use English to learn, when I started working with students, new, especially with newcomers, I mean, not only with newcomers, but students who've been in the U.S. classroom, let's say, uh, within the last five years, although they use Arabic at home and in their community, when we introduce this translanguaging approach, saying that we'll be using Arabic to some of them were like questioning, like, why Arabic? And some were saying, I don't even read or write Arabic, or Arabic is for home. And especially girls, they were very self-conscious that if they spoke Arabic in school, they thought that they would be placed in a lower level of mm. English as a second language class. So there was mm. some kind of fear <laughs> mm -hmm. why using Arabic. But with the time, as the use this approach throughout the school year students who could read they were they took on the role of leaders in the classroom they were agentive more confident because we use their skill to read aloud arabic for the whole class and for mm -hmm. those students who do not read or write arabic so they were reading the text from student packets from slides and gradually students saw that their knowledge particular reading Arabic was honored and respected. And over time, they recognized, the whole class uh, started recognizing the value of Arabic. And 
the students actually started taking Arabic as an elective course as a whole class. Oh, wow. That's that's amazing. In their school. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was... And also the excitement that they were actually recognizing the differences in their dialects, like Lebanese, Iraqi, Yemeni, and uh-huh. then talking about these differences and recognizing differences between formal and informal Arabic and then comparing that to formal and informal English. Uh-huh. So that's all process of learning. <laughs> wow. So. What a great way to enrich the classroom for everybody. By acknowledging a person's cultural and home language, it enriched Mm -hmm. the entire classroom. What surprised you in your work and in your research? This seems like a really neat, cool finding about the other students engaged and acknowledged and were Mm -hmm. at a level where they could even hear dialect differences between different countries Mm -hmm. of origin. Um, Were there other surprises um, as a part of your research? Well, those were like what I just shared were kind of what I was learning. And I was also surprised. There were like a lot of moments. And that was also part of my learning, actually, how these students responded to the use of home, what we call home language or Arabic in this case. So as I said, at first, they were like surprised. It's like, why Arabic? Because, as I said, they used or socialized to use only English in learning subjects. And uh, some students, I wouldn't say like rejected, but they maybe, as I mentioned earlier, those examples, like fear in terms of that would affect their progress in the classroom and fear being placed on a lower level. And as I said, like, gradually when it's honored, respected, and when students are, it's very important that they're continuously encouraged because when it's introduced, it's a language they use every day at home and in community. But when we introduce in classroom, they're just not used and they still don't have, going back to what we talked about, the register, like register in Arabic, how to talk about topics in social studies and and they even don't know disciplinary language in Arabic. So more they are encouraged and supported, more they're taking that up and as I said, they're becoming more confident and mm-hmm. agentive in terms of not only with teachers, but about among themselves, like that they're supporting and doing these so-called translanguaging shifts where they are using either Arabic or English or both to talk about content that they are learning. Yeah. Did you see any, I'd imagine by having the materials in Arabic that Mm -hmm. families might also be able to support their students better in the classroom as they'll have it in their language to be able to support the student Did you notice any patterns of parental support? Well, research actually is now focused, not the research that I've been doing, but we know that recent research is calling for more involvement of parents, especially bilingual and biliterate parents, in terms of inviting them to come to schools to support teachers. So it's inviting community, caregivers, partners from the community and parents to come and help teachers 
because they bring this linguistic and cultural knowledge and using multilingual materials that are in schools. So we do all materials that are used in my research was translated in Arabic. So slides, complete student packets and disciplinary literacy tools, everything was translated in Arabic. And students had the opportunity to share that with parents and the materials are also on the Read, Inquire, Write website. It's the project that I'm involved with, with the School of Education. So they have access to those materials and students can bring their home and also show their parents what they're learning and have their parents help them read those materials. I answered your question. Yeah, <laughs> well, this is yeah. completely interesting. So I have my PhD in education and mm. find this completely interesting you know, based on what you've learned and your lived experiences, what would you recommend to teachers as best practices for supporting bilingual and multilingual students in the classroom? I've been a teacher for 20 years in all grades and also college students or undergrad and master's students. So in these, let's say, approximately 20 years, first thing that I learned personally is that being reflective and flexible in my teaching as well as learning about students, about these linguistic and cultural background assets that they have, learning that way about students enables me to respond to my students' needs and wants and to provide them with the learning experiences that support their development and growth in culturally sustaining ways. And in particular to for teachers of emerging bilingual, multilingual students, and I, I guess all teachers, they should have uh, or develop enthusiasm and confidence for teaching. And for emergent bilingual and multilingual students, it comes with developing the trans, so-called translanguaging stance that centers students' bilingualism and cultural backgrounds when preparing lessons, teaching, and assessing their students' work. And viewing students' bilingualism as a resource and not a problem that needs to be fixed. And also ability to provide clear, actionable, and positive feedback that supports the development of students' speaking, listening, reading, and writing abilities for various contexts in culturally sustaining way. I love what you just said about it's not something that needs to get fixed, but to accept yes. that it is and really support the students where they're at. Yeah, it needs to become a norm mm -hmm. in this classroom. So usually bilingualism has been seen as a problem or students' home languages mm -hmm. because only English has been favored. So in order to learn English, sometimes students' home languages or their bilingualism has been discounted and maybe sometimes taught by some as an impediment to developing English. And that's why I said something that needs to be fixed. So yeah. actually, it has to be encouraged, invited, honored, and implemented actually now as a pedagogical and curriculum mm -hmm. approach. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Yeah, so before we started recording, I mentioned how this podcast originated in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I know that research among PhD candidates was disrupted during that period. 
Did it affect your work at all? And if so, how did you pivot and manage the change? So actually, so I started my research in September 2021. So it's when the different district students were coming back into classrooms. And so the teacher and the district where I was working, they were fully back into the classroom. But the whole fall and winter semester, we experienced with my cooperating teacher, myself and students, a lot of personal and family emergencies during due to COVID-19. And we had interruptions in terms of sometimes up to a whole week of teaching. And then also what I remember these moments when students were pulled out of the classroom like literally in the midst of sentences, their responses they were giving to us as co-teachers, they were pulled out of classroom for testing and tracing for close contact. So I was sometimes like, I, I know it's life, and <laughs> but it's kind of, I'm, I'm really focused on students and it's like interrupting learning. So as I said, we were all collectively facing those challenges and we were doing our best to stay healthy and to be safe and we managed to work together throughout the that sixth grade students cohort and my cooperating teacher and I we managed to successfully complete that academic year and uh, that. and I also like really what I kind of experienced during that time that we approached our work with, I approached actually their classroom and my work with them with respect and dedication. And I also, we mutually developed joy and love for our work together. And mm-hmm. yeah, so that's how kind of we were resilient to go through that period and yeah, work together. I mean, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you and to learn about all of your research. I'm so appreciative for this time with you today. And yeah, it, it just amazing work you're doing to support students to feel included in the classroom and having their families feel included in the classroom. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the Three Fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.